I deliberately chose not to preach verse by verse through the entire book of Isaiah. Um, it might have been a bit of a pragmatic reason. I thought that uh, the endurance of the congregation might not last for six years or whatever it would take to get through the book of Isaiah. And I opted instead to just focus on the gospel as it is presented throughout the book. So today we're kind of wrapping up that study. And chapter 66, you might consider it sort of a summation of everything that we have learned. Uh, some have said that the, the book of Romans could be considered a systematic theology, or is as close to a systematic theology as we have in the New Testament. I would say that Isaiah is pretty close to a systematic theology. We learn so much about the nature and character of God. We, know, we learn so much about the nature and character of man. We learn so much about the redemptive plan of God. We learn about the, the sovereignty of God. We learn uh, everything. Basically, the entire New Testament is in one way or another foreshadowed in the book of Isaiah. And beyond that, we have a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, which it permeates the entire book. Isaiah's call was literally an encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ when he saw the Lord of hosts in the temple and he was immediately convicted of his sins and he fell on his face and he said, Woe is unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips and of dwell amongst the people of unclean lips and mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That king, that Lord of hosts, John chapter 12, tells us was Jesus Christ. It was the living word, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, who appeared to Isaiah. And so there is an undercurrent of gospel that goes through the whole book. Now Isaiah chapter 66 does not direct the, address the gospel directly what it does do is to um, give some clear consequences and outworkings of the rejection of the gospel and of the humble reception of the gospel, of the blessings that accompany those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to... Uh, really, it's going to be quite a, a whirlwind tour. I want to try to get through this chapter... I don't want it to take too terribly long to do it, but I've divided the chapter into seven headings, and I'll just give you those in advance so you can know what's coming. First of all is the domain, domain of God. Um, a question that children ask often is, where is God? Where is God? Um, is God in my heart? Is God everywhere? And the answer is yes. The domain of God. The Lord... The Lord's domain. Second, the delusion of hypocrites. Third, the deliverance of Zion. In other words, the rebirth or the, uh, the, the children of Zion, of, of Jerusalem being born, which is a picture of uh, a renewed nation of Israel. It's also a picture of regeneration for, for believers. And then the delight of true worshipers, the destruction of false worshipers, the drawing of the nations, and finally the desolation of the wicked. Like so many of the chapters in the book of Isaiah, the entire book ends on a very ominous note. Ends on a note of uh, just a very solemn note. Jesus, The same language is picked up by Jesus in the New Testament and used to describe eternal punishment. So in this chapter, the heavenly... And the eternal realities are set clearly before us. And we, as, we, as we go through, we cannot help but examine ourselves to see whether we are a hypocrite, whether we are a true worshiper, or whether we are a false worshiper in that we don't even try or attempt or um, we don't even make a pretense of worshiping the true God. We worship whatever we jolly well please. And I hope that we can all see ourselves in this passage somewhere. 
And that the response of our heart would be that which is worked by the Holy Spirit. There are many appeals in the book of Isaiah. Unfortunately, they are not in this chapter. But I would encourage you, as the Lord impresses truth upon your heart, that you would respond to his first appeal in Isaiah chapter 2, I think it is. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. God invites us to come to him, armed with the truth and even crushed by the truth of our sin, but also of the fact that he has intervened in order to save us. So let's begin. I won't read the whole chapter at once. I'll read it in sections today. Isaiah chapter 66, starting at verse 1. And the title for this, the first two verses, the title I've given it anyways, is the domain of God. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. What you have there is um, a mini theology that addresses the domain or the dwelling place of God. In one sense, he has no dwelling place because nothing can contain him. The separateness of God from his creation is declared in these first two verses. It says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you could build for me? It's not even saying literally that heavens can contain him or that earth is uh, the right size to be his footstool. It is saying that there is nothing that can contain the one who created it. The creation is too small to even be a an accurate representation of the creator, much less contain him. You will hear among many philosophers um, uh, the idea that everything is God, or you hear of folks throwing out requests to the universe. God made the universe. He made the multiverse, if there's such a thing. He is above and beyond all of it. All of these things His hands have made. In Psalm 121, the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You see, the pagan, the unbeliever, and even the Christian who has a low view of God, or the Christian professor who has a low view of God, will look to the hills and he will worship the hills. That's the biggest thing in my vision. I'm going to worship them. They, they have the idea that God dwells in some physical locale or that God is somehow represented in some image that they have and they bow down to that but the psalmist says I lift up to my eyes to the hills now in the King James there wasn't a punctuation mark there and I always read it I lift up to my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help period and I always wondered well how can my help become come from the hills because God does not dwell in a specific location. Um, but when you move the punctuation to the proper place, he's looking out to the hills. He's saying, where does my help come from? Oh yes, it comes from the one who made the hills. It comes from the creator of heaven and earth. That's one aspect. It is God's transcendence. It is God's otherness, his separation from his creation, his expansiveness, the fact that he cannot be contained. But then look at the next verse. That is the end of verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. You see, God is 
everywhere and fills everything and is above every created thing. But he is, in addition to being a transcendent God, he is an imminent God. And he concentrates his presence for his purposes in holy places. One of the holy places was in the tabernacle where the cloud, glory cloud would descend upon the tabernacle and then the glory would fill the temple. And it was a radiant glory uh, that would consume anyone who came into its presence. It was a glory that filled the temple when Solomon commissioned the temple and the glory cloud filled the temple and the priests could not even go in because of the glory. But God concentrated his presence at first in that tabernacle, that roughly layered tent out in the wilderness with animal hides on the outside and all of the glory was in the inside. God concentrated his presence when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He had no earthly form that we should desire him, but the presence of God in him bodily dwelt. And God's fullness was revealed in Jesus Christ. Now there is also another place where God concentrates his presence. To this, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. That is Isaiah's code for a believer. And if you wanted to make an analogy between the last book of Isaiah, like we said, Isaiah has 66 chapters, okay? And I said, well, it's kind of almost like a mini Old Testament and then a mini New Testament. 39 books talking about the promise of Messiah and, and then uh, the other 27 talking about the work of Messiah. Well, you could almost make an analogy between chapter 66 here, this idea of trembling at the word of God, and the overcomers in the book of Isaiah, in, or in the book of Revelation. The overcomers in the book of Revelation are believers. I, I believe it's a synonym. And the tremblers in the book of Isaiah are believers. Now, in the passage we read in John, Jesus says to the woman, the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That is exactly the concept that is being presented here by those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at the word. When God's word tells us about our sin, we dare not argue. When God's word tells us about his holiness, we dare not protest and say, well, he can't be that great. He can't be that terrible. He can't be that um, sovereign. He can't even be that loving. We need to tremble because we know God's word is true. All of it. And when we know it's true, when we believe it, we humble ourselves. And God makes his dwelling with us. Now this idea of not being able to make a house to contain the Lord or a dwelling for Him. Um, it is something that is addressed in the New Testament as well. Of course, there was a tabernacle and of course God's presence in a special way dwelt there. And there was a temple. And I believe there will be another temple. And that God's presence in the person of Messiah, King Jesus, will reign there. I believe all of that. And yet, the physical elements, the physical dwelling, that is never the main point of God. All of these things represent the spiritual reality of a spiritual kingdom and of hearts of men and women that worship him in spirit and in truth. That is the ultimate meaning of 
or the ultimate expression of what the temple only is a, a dim image of. Let's, uh, if you look at First uh, Peter chapter two, verses four to ten, there's a description there of this temple, and it gives us maybe a better understanding of what it means. That God dwells with the humble and contrite in spirit. First uh, Peter two verse six, for it stands in Scripture: Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him. Oh, I missed part of it. I wanted to start at verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God. Chosen and precious, that's Jesus. We read in Isaiah 53 how he was despised and rejected of men. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him are those who tremble at his word. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So there you have the scope of the domain of God. He is everywhere and beyond everywhere. That he makes his dwelling with his saints. Now we take a radical departure from the domain of God and we go to the delusion of hypocrites. This is found in verses 3 through 6. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Christians, hear this. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. It's got, you've got to read the sarcasm there. But it is they who will be put to shame. The sound of, of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. All right, so there are a number of things that we can learn about the false worship of hypocrites. It's, it's quite a stark uh, contrast to go from this description of God and his immenseness and his transcendence and the broken hearts of those who love him. And then that contrasted with people who despise him. And even though they outwardly worship him, they despise him in their hearts. But this is the reality. Isaiah does not pull punches when it comes to truth about the human heart, even the truth of his own people. First of all, we see that their worship is insincere. You know, uh, Amanda and Mike, they sang, um, Come Thou Fount. And one of the, one of the, lines of that is, teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Well, in this case, God is saying, when these people sing to me, it's some melodorous sonnet <laughs> sung by stinking tongues below. Um, 
there, God uses some very harsh language to describe the worship, the outward worship of his people. And I know that you're wise enough that you can make application and you can say, well, these things, we don't even make sacrifices anymore. But it is certainly possible to bring God a malodorous sonnet, even in the way that we worship. And I don't mean how nice your voice sounds. I mean, a, it's mean it means a tongue, a mouth out of which proceeds both blessing and cursing. It's a mouth that draws near to God with their, your, it's drawn near to God with your lips, but your heart's being far from Him. That's a, that is a malodorous sonnet. Let's look at what it says here. Their worship is insincere. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. In other words, with, in a heart that is far from God, a heart that is self-centered and self-motivated and self-righteous, killing an ox is even in even in as it is prescribed in the law of God in the Old Testament, it's like committing a human sacrifice to a pagan god. That is how much God appreciates that. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck again is no better than a pagan sacrifice. And of course, dogs were definitely considered unclean in the Jewish law. Um, the the uh, derogatory term for Gentiles was dogs. There was absolutely, uh, what, to, hear, to hear this as an Israeli or as an Israelite person uh, would be, it would be very shocking language indeed. No, no Jew would ever think of sacrificing a dog upon the altar. But in their hearts, that's exactly what they were doing. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. And, and see, we're just getting... <laughs> we're getting some very graphic imagery here. Not only, not only a pig, but the blood of a pig would be a blasphemous sacrifice. He who presents... Uh, he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. When we began this series in Isaiah, the very first message, I called it Sin 101. You might remember that. But there's a very similar description. And so from the very first chapter, and then summing up in the very last chapter, Isaiah paints a graphic, unrelenting, photorealistic picture of the human heart. In chapter 1, he said very similar things. Why do you come and be fear, appear before me? Verse 12. Who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations I cannot endure. Iniquity, or pardon me, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. See, that was the problem. Solemn assembly, that's what God desires. But don't bring your iniquity and say that you can come to solemn assembly and harbor that iniquity in your heart at the same time. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. You have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. I'll stop there, but if you read on, you can see, you can hear the Lord's first appeal, which is to come and to be washed and to be cleansed, and then to reason with God. Well, I just read that to show that this theme of human wickedness, um, it, it, it is kind of like bookends around the whole chapter. You have stiff-necked people who are resistant and hardened, and who are idolatrous in their hearts. Well, not only is their worship insincere, we're back to Isaiah chapter 66 now, their ways are an abomination. Their ways are an abomination. Verse, uh, the last part of verse 3, These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. What a contrast from those who are broken and contrite in spirit and tremble at the word of God. Those people would never choose, choose their own ways. 
They would never follow abominations because they are trembling at the word of God. But these, their own ways, their own understandings are what really matter to them. Their soul delights in their abominations. Abominations is ugly, dirty filthiness. Doesn't isn't specific here, but we may have a clue in the next verse. And I, I call this the delusion of hypocrites because the concept of delusion or being um, being manipulated it's actually in here in the original or in the in the meanings of the words. Verse four it says, "I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them." Now I don't know if anyone has a translation, but that, that has this, but some. Translations would say, I will also choose their delusions for them and bring their fears upon them. I think there is a link here between abominations and delusions. Because when people have a, a wrong concept of God and a wrong concept of worship, they tend to create for themselves artificial structures and artificial rituals of worship. And many of these, I believe, are demonically inspired. Isaiah talks elsewhere of God putting upon his people a spirit of stupor, a spirit of drunkenness. When people deviate from the truth and there is no gospel there, there is no truth there, or when it is muted and when it is pushed off to the side, they're going to replace the pure word of God with something else. Something that appeals to their flesh. Literally this word, uh, which when he says he will choose their harsh treatment, he will choose harsh treatment or choose their delusions, the idea is of being seized with like a, a, a seizure or a, a fit of trembling. It is involuntary trembling where... You are out of control in contrast to those who are trembling at the word of God. These people are trembling under some delusion, under some false tyranny of a false system of worship. You don't have to look very far to, to see people in delusions. There can be delusions of, of legalism where there is, a, you know, um, a promise of God's favor for observing certain principles and laws. There's a delusion of experience, and I think this is a really big one, where if you get goosebumps and if you get shivers and if you you know you jerk around like a you know like a salmon on the deck or something like that, then that's the presence of God. You realize that God sends delusion as judgment. Right? He does. It says, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. Again, you've got a contrast between those who tremble at the word of God, who are tuned to the word of God. And here, these people have the same scriptures they, I know they have the same scriptures because they are observing the sacrifices as they're laid out. And God is calling them through the scriptures. He is calling to them through the prophets. And they will not listen. It is a hardness rather than a softness to the word of God. They did what was evil in my eyes and chose what, in what, what I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Now God's going to address his people for a moment. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out from the, for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. That's kind of, these people are, are Minnesota nice, right? They're, they're blessing you with their mouth and they're cursing you in their heart. They don't really want the well-being of the tremblers. They think the tremblers, they're kind of goofy and kind of weird. And... You know, all of this talk about their own sin. When 
these the, the others, the opposite, these people who delight in their own abominations, they're they're thinking they're doing everything right and that the Lord is pleased with them. And they have that sense of their self-righteousness. It says, but it is they who shall be put to shame. So not only is their worship sincere, insincere, their way is an abomination, but their words are deceitful. But in verse 6, God is reassuring his people. He says, their woe is coming. Their woe is coming. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. We get a little taste of this. When Jesus fashions a cord, a whip out of cords, and goes into the temple and chases out the money changers, saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then after his disciples remembered the scripture that said, The zeal, zeal for my father's house has consumed me. God is going, Christ is going to do this on a massive scale when he returns. The day of the Lord is a day of wrath. It is also a day of redemption. And he will execute judgment. He is that dread warrior. He is the rider on the white horse of Revelation chapter 19. And he will cleanse his temple again. Now let's look at the third point here, which is the deliverance of Zion. I'm using deliverance in the idea, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, in the sense of uh, uh, a child being brought into the world. It says here, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? All right, now this is a difficult passage, and I believe it has a number of possible meanings. And I would encourage you, as you listen to this, not to lock in on any one of these meanings. Because I think that there's merit in all of them. I think that this passage speaks to every man, woman, and child in every generation. Because it talks about God's dealing with his people. And it, 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 it speaks to the situation of, of the exiles coming back to Jerusalem in one sense. It speaks to the coming Messiah in another sense. It speaks to the birth of the church in another sense. Here's one interpretation. When it says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. One possible way is to see, this is, this is a picture of the birth of Messiah. Because if you read the scriptures and you read all the way through, you find that the time of Jacob's trouble is yet to come. The time of persecution and of, of refinement and repentance for Israel, that is yet to come. Before Israel is um, redeemed and all saved in the last day. But Jesus was be born before all of that. He wasn't born in the time of Jacob's trouble. He was born before there was any real tribulation. Um, Jerusalem was as um, illustrious as it had ever been. It was under Roman domination, but they had, they could, they had their temple, they had their worship. People would come from all over the known world to worship in Jerusalem. But we read in the book of Revelation and we read in the, the book of Daniel and other prophetic scriptures that there is a time of trouble coming. Matthew 24 says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. So we've got this birth of a male child, birth of a son. It may very well be an allusion to Messiah. 
It may also, as we look on a little bit here, it says, shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? Now, if you look at the history of Israel, there have been a couple of rebirths. There was a return from the exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, when Isaiah wrote this, the exile hadn't even happened yet, but he'd already been prophesying about the return. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing to Zion. So he was looking way ahead. So there's this possibility that uh, that return and that rebuilding of the temple and that amazing, miraculous building of the wall in, I think it was 51 days or something like that under Nehemiah, um, it might be referring to that. Then it might be referring to the return of, or the a sudden establishment of the nation of Israel at the end of World War II. I think it was 1949. And then the dramatic ousting of all of Israel's enemies in the Six Day War in 1966. That could be uh, a modern return, a modern rebirth of Zion. But I, I would like to suggest there's something else to consider. I think there's merit in all of those things. By the way, I would caution anyone who's looking at Israel and say, yep, that's the apple of God's eye and everything that's happening in Israel is wonderful right now. And Israel are the people of God. And, um, and don't you dare say anything against any of their politics or whatever. Um, Israel is still an unrepentant nation. Israel is not submitted to God. Maybe there are some there who are. There are very few actual Christians in Israel, but that number is growing. Um, the time of Jacob's trouble is still coming. And the Israel of God that is all saved in the end, after humbling and after the Gentiles make them jealous, that's not the Israel that's there right now. It may be, I think of this often, a partial fulfillment of Isaiah's or Ezekiel's um, prophecy to the dry bones, where where he where the the Lord tells him prophesy to the bones, and they prophesy. He prophesies. He speaks the word to them, and the bones come together, but there's no life. And he prophesies, and there's sinews and muscles on them, but there's no life. Then he prophesies to the wind, or to the breath, or to the spirit. And that's when the bones live. I don't think the bones are alive yet. So that's one way to look at it. And then, and I'm going to throw this out there, and I honestly couldn't find it in a commentary, but my, my heart thinks that this is... And I'm hoping it's my, my new heart that believes this. That it may refer to the day of Pentecost. Look at what was birthed on the day of Pentecost. Barbarians and Scythians and people from all over the world gathered for the feast, the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. The apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to preach Peter stands up and boldly proclaims the need for repentance and for forgiveness of sins. And 3,000 people are saved. And from there, I would say a spiritual nation was born. Everybody there pretty much was Jews. But it went out then to Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. In the sense of the Israel of God, we understand that Gentiles are grafted in. And that nation was also birthed in a day. So, I think scripture is big enough to embrace all of those. And that God, God can speak to people in all of those situations through this passage. Let's move on to point number four, the delight of true worshipers. <clears throat> the delight of true worshipers. 
Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy. All you, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breasts, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. So you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall sow his indignation against his enemies. Just imagine a little infant, cuddled, and nursing from his mother, the contentment, the peace that's there. Isaiah chapter 40 says, says, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Was it Isaiah 40? Maybe not. Um, but you have, uh, you have this image of peace, of abundance, of comfort, and God actually uses a feminine image that's showing his motherly, feminine, uh, not necessarily feminine, but he's using the, the expression of a mother's love for her child, for his own love for Israel, and for all who love her. I think that there's more in view here than the city of Jerusalem. I think there's more in view here than the return of the exiles. Because even the comfort that they received after they returned was sporadic. There's not even a temple there now. There's no comfort there now. There's unrest now. But there is a Jerusalem that is broader. And that, are, that is everyone who is a child of Abraham by faith. It is everyone who's a, not a, a Jew by virtue of circumcision, but a Jew who is one inwardly, who has a circumcision of the heart. And there is abundance, and there is comfort, and there is peace in the arms of Jesus. The kingdom of God is flourishing, even though that there is an interloper in the, the devil. He is called the God of this world or the God of this age who is still trying to wreak havoc, there is peace within Jerusalem. There is peace among the people of God. The delight of true worshipers. I guess a word I haven't used enough here is delight, but it says you shall delight from her glorious abundance. Let's not have a low view of the church. Let's not think that the church is just some dead, old, tired institution and that organized religion is on its way out. The people of God is a place where we, the church, the people of God, when we gather in joyous assembly, we nurture, we feed one another, we hear the word. This is how God gets things done amongst his people and how he comforts them. Well, now another stark contrast. Let's go from the delight of true worshipers to the destruction of false worshipers. Now, we've already looked at some false worshipers. Those would be the people who were observing the Jewish system, all the laws, but they were observing them insincerely. But now, we have a difference. The destruction of false worshippers. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his word with all flesh. This is a much wider judgment. And it's a judgment of fire, and it's a judgment of sword. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Well, who are those many? Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, 
eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. This is all the other religious systems that don't purport to be Christian, that don't purport to be based on the Word of God. God this is God's judgment coming on all false worshippers. You know, the book of Romans, chapter 1, tells us that even as Gentiles, there is a law, a universal law, written on our hearts. And when we do by nature the things that are in the law, and we, when we disobey or we, we rebel against the truth that we know, we also break the law of God, even though we don't have the Ten Commandments or we don't have the Torah written to us. We still violate the law of God. And when all of these religious systems and these rituals and other religions, no matter how many people you say you hear say, well, Muslims worship the same God, or it's just the same God by a different name, or all roads lead to God, or God is big enough to... Uh, absorb all of our different understandings and he's okay with that. That's all garbage. Because God is coming in judgment against false worshippers. There are no atheists in this world. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. That's what an atheist really is. He's someone who is suppressing the truth. Someone who refuses to hear the obvious. And so you can make any other kind of system. But God is going to come in destruction of all of those things. Let's look now to the drawing of nations. This is exciting. We begin with a description of the Jewish rites of worship and how they were being abused. But some God is going to do something, and he's even doing it now, that is absolutely amazing. And this has to do with the cleansing that he calls us to in the early part of Isaiah. Come, wash yourself, be clean, all your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Listen to this. For I know their works and their thoughts, and a time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow, who draw the bow, that's a description of the people in Lud, uh, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, and have not heard, that have not heard my name or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, which are camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their green grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them, remember, these are Gentiles. These are all nations. You could literally say all the Gentiles. And some of them I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. This is the grafting in that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9. Being grafted in, or maybe it's, I think it's 11, maybe both. But being grafted in um, and being supported by the root. But what's happening here, it's a picture of the progress. And again, there is... I'm sure that there is an ultimate end times, final in-gathering aspect here, where all Israel will be saved, where there will be a mass repentance, when every man, woman, and child who remains after that time of trouble bows and laments and mourns for the one that they have pierced, and he has mercy on them, and he heals them, and he cleanses their iniquities, and in in one day, draws them to himself. And then after that, there will be a further evangelization of the world. But I believe this also is a picture of the progress of the church, the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem. And then 
in coming back to Jerusalem, they're being brought into the fold of the true believers, of those who tremble at his word. Um, so the new, this, this in one sense is the spiritual Jerusalem, the gathered, or the spiritual Zion, the gathered people of God. The progress of the gospel and how God is using that and drawing people to himself. Jesus says in John chapter 6, no man comes to Father, unless the Father who sent, no man comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. People do not even have an inclination or a thought. Say, ah, I think I'm going to head to Jerusalem. I think I'm going to go toward and seek the face of God. But we all kind of know what God is like. We all know that He's holy. We know that we are not. We know that his restrictions on us and his demands of us would be more than we can bear. So our natural tendency is to run as fast as we can the other way. But God pursues us. And our hearts, they don't even have a desire. They are, we are spiritually dead. But God pursues us. And God speaks to us. And he speaks his word to us. And we are born again by the living and enduring word of God. We're brought from death to life. The bones live when God speaks and when God grants hearing. The idea of Gentiles coming as offerings in pure vessels. To understand this, take a quick look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. I'm going to have to start at 9 to make sense out of this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. That's why they can come into the temple as holy sacrifices. That's why they could be called not literal spirit but Levites and priests, but the idea of God's own people. Verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. God is not going to abandon his people. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me. Now that doesn't mean every single person in the world. That means all of the nations. This is, there, there's going to be a time where Christ reigns and all the nations come to worship him. Now you can compare that to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 14. Now look at the words here. From new moon to new moon to Sabbath to Sabbath. We started with a, with a description of people who God hated their new moons and he hated their Sabbaths. And now he's using this perpetual image of new moon, new moon, new moon, Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. It says your new moons, he, it, it started out your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates and they become a burden to me. I'm weary of burying them. That's chapter 1. But with the redemption, with the cleansing of Jesus, and with the restoration and the rebirth of Jerusalem, and the regeneration of people dead in trespasses and sins, God delights in these. And they're going to be everlasting. One more point here, the desolation of the wicked. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, 
and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So even in the even in the joy of the drawing of the nations, there's going to be this final drawing. There's also going to be a final destruction of those who rebel against God. Again, Revelation 19 has this image of Jesus coming with a sword coming out of his mouth and the name written on his thigh which says the word of God and his blood, garments dipped in blood and he comes from trampling the vineyard and the wine press of the wrath of God. Jesus picks up the image of the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched in Mark chapter 9, verse 44. See, the reality, there will be eternal rest, eternal peace, eternal joy for the people of God. But there is eternal desolation. When you read this, Uh, passage, you think, well, surely that must just be annihilation. Surely they will just, it says that they will look on the dead bodies of men and women who rebelled against me. And so there's, there's death there. But there's also something that's ominous here. Their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. There's this idea of torment, a perpetual torment. Because they have sinned against an absolutely perfect God. They have not listened when He called to them. They have resisted Him in every way. They have pursued their own way and their own abominations. And every warning call of God they have rejected. Um, Mark chapter 9. We'll just uh, close with this. Verse 44. And if your hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than, than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And then down to 46 to 48. And if your foot causes it to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your own eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better, better you to go into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm dies not, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire alright so Jesus uses that image and it later became part of the it became part of the image of Gehenna it's basically a picture of God's wrath against the wicked now if you could just take a step back from this whole chapter and from this whole book and you put two titles over it wrath and redemption. You have the real summary of Isaiah, of a God who is holy and just, and who has to deal righteously with sin, and of his plan to redeem men and to save them out of their sin through Jesus Christ. When, when Isaiah says, come let us reason together, he's talking about God and man coming together and in chapter 52 and 53, he says that the punishment that brought peace was upon him, upon Jesus. That he was wounded for our transgressions. That he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement that brought him peace, brought us peace, was upon him. Jesus made peace with God. The Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all and forgave our sins. So the message is 
Come to God. Come reason with Him. And the only way to come is through Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for just the, the strength and the patience for the hearers to go through this text. We look to you for many future blessings from your word, but I pray that we would have a new hunger for the truths that are contained in this book. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead us as we pursue the Gospel of John next. Um, Lord, that you would build upon, line upon line, precept upon precept, upon the truths that we already know, and that those truths would become more and more precious. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed for supper.